get my shoes and out the door. Five, I'm alive, six, seven, eight, feeling great. Hello, BYWG Tribe. Here's a quick peek at our supplement, product, and book of the month for July 2020. At the end of the podcast, I'll spend a few minutes going into further detail so we encourage you to listen to the end. The supplement of the month for July is our very own highly absorbable magnesium glycinate. The 10% discount code in office or online is MAG10. That's case sensitive, so it's lowercase M-A-G-10. Our book of the month is the Life Strengthening Book by Deanna Ferrugia. The product of the month is the True Dark Company and their incredible list of blue light blocking glasses and their other products too, as they say, stop junk light. All the links, discount codes, and special offers for the product, supplement, and the book will be listed in the show notes in Apple Podcasts, post on social media, in our weekly newsletter, and on our website at www.beyondyourwildestgenes at the Listen Now tab. Thanks, as always, for listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond Your Wildest Genes podcast. I'm your co-host today, Dr. Mike Akinfora, and today I have with me Dr. Glenn Livingston. Glenn, how are you? I'm very good, and I'm glad you're calling me Glenn. (laughs) (laughs) Let me read you Glenn's bio, and then we're going to get right into his new book. Glenn Livingston, Ph.D., is a veteran psychologist and was the longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consult cut a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. You may have seen his or his company's previous work theories and research in major periodicals like the New York Times, the L.A. Times, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Indiana Star-Ledger, and the New York Times and American Demographics. You may also have heard him on ABC, WGN, and or CBS Radio or UPN TV. Disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and or food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with over 40,000 participants. Most important, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal, healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. Glenn, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, Michael. I've been looking forward to this all week. Wonderful. You and I both, uh, as a former very, very, very heavy guy um, and a healthy weight now. I understand exactly what your book, Never Binge Again, Stop Overeating and Binge Eating and Reprogramming Yourself to Think Like a Permanently Thin Person on the Food Plan of Your Choice. I understand this uniquely. <laughs> well, you, you, you and me both then, right? Absolutely. So yeah. tell people, Glenn, tell people about your journey because we love a good backstory. Okay. Well, um, the most unique thing about my background is I'm, I'm not just a psychologist, I'm, I'm a formerly obese person, um, but I'm also from a family of 17 psychologists and psychotherapists and counselors and social workers, and, and um, I often joke you really don't want to come to my family reunion. <laughs> and that, that, that becomes important to put my story in context later because you know, sometimes when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and I really tried to solve my problem psychologically. But the the problem I had today would have been diagnosed as exercise bulimia, which means that I, I couldn't put my finger down my throat. I just couldn't do it. 
Um, but I figured out that since I'm 6'4 and reasonably muscular, if I worked out for two and a half, three hours a day most days, I could eat whatever I wanted to. And I was no stranger to 6,500, 7,500 calories a day eating, you know, two whole pizzas or, um, you know, uh, uh, two boxes of Dunkin' Munchkins or um, five bars of chocolate, you know, lattes, um, you name it, and I put it in my mouth, along with all the crazy food behaviors like, you know, putting it in the garbage so that I wouldn't have any more and then going back to the garbage to take it out or eating off the floor or stealing all of my roommate's food um, and, you know, not telling him that his mom sent him a care package. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I live to eat is what it basically, basically came down to. And what happened was I didn't really think that was a problem so much in my adolescence and early adulthood. But when I got to be like 23, 24 years old, and I was married, I'm, I'm divorced now, but I was married and in graduate school and seeing patients and I had all these responsibilities all of a sudden. And, you know, you can't work out two and a half, three hours a day for the rest of your life. You just, you just can't do that. And your metabolism slows down and I started to get fat and I got fatter and fatter and fatter. And I find that I, I just couldn't get rid of the food obsession. Um, and this was very upsetting to me in particular because, you know, in my family, I was raised to put psychology first and foremost. Um, I often joke that all my friends were looking forward to getting a car on their 16th birthday, but I was looking forward to go to see a shrink because my dad said I could do it when I was 16. Mm. And, and it really meant a lot to me to be the best psychologist I could be. And I was sitting there with sometimes suicidal patients or people who were recovering from an affair, really some of the most serious things that psychologists could deal with. And I couldn't totally concentrate because I would be thinking about you know, when, when can I go to the delicatessen and <laughs> dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of it into it, you know, like a snake. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I mean, I'm joking about it, but it, it really bothered me. And anybody who's really suffered from binge eating kind of knows that feeling. If, if you haven't suffered from binge eating, if you don't feel like someone's got a gun to your head and forcing you to eat even you know, beyond the point of pain sometimes, if you just suffer from constantly reversing your best decisions and your best thinking about food, then this is going to be a very pertinent interview for you also. So, you know, for the people who make a dietary pledge on Monday morning and then by Monday afternoon it's gone, um, listen carefully because this will help you too. But I was a lot further gone than that. And I had horrible triglycerides. The last test that I kept was like 832 or something, but I remember them going above 1100. The doctors were telling me that since virtually every man on my mother's side of the family had had a heart attack, you know, before he was 50, that I was probably going to die before I was 40. And um, I was I was in trouble. I was really in trouble. And being a psychologist at, with all these connections in New York City, I went to some of the best doctors around. And I really did a lot of soul searching and I... Having done all of the – I don't have kids and I never commuted, so I had a varied career. I did a lot of consulting for big industry like you mentioned in my bio. And I knew how to run these large research studies. And this was back in the days when the internet was cheap to buy traffic, um, like around 2000, 2001. And I bought a lot of traffic, um, mostly targeting people who were undergoing stress or having some food problem. And I looked at the interaction between the particular foods people struggled with and the types of issues they were struggling with in their life. 
And I figured that if I could make those correlations, for, for me, chocolate was always the trigger. For me, um, for me, my, you know, my my sister. There's nothing wrong with chocolate per se. For people, uh, my sister can take two squares of chocolate and fold the rest up in her little purse and save it for the weekend. And I, I just don't know what's wrong with her. Um, but I can't do that. I, two squares of chocolate and I'm kind of gone. And I want I want five or six bars, and then some pizza to slow me down, and then you know a coffee to speed me up. And it's it's crazy. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, it's I, I, we might have been separated at birth. <laughs> <laughs> you're the guy finally my, my, my long lost twin you're, you're I, long I lost you, twin <laughs> I miss you Michael I miss you so much oh my um, goodness um, I was an athlete who basically like yourself I actually trained so that I could eat and, and then and then as life has it your career starts and I stopped training but I kept eating that <laughs> That's the story. That is a recipe for not good things. So let, let me tell you, I'll, I'll try to speed it up a little bit. So, nah, so, not at all. I, we got all the time. Okay. So um, what I found in the study about chocolate, which was interesting, mm -hmm. was that there was a moderately significant correlation between people who struggle with chocolate that felt heartbreak or loneliness in their life. Mm. And – you know, as you can imagine, I'm divorced now and my marriage was a little troubled. So I was feeling some heartbreak and loneliness. And my, um, I, I went and I went back and talked to my mom about my upbringing and I found out something really interesting, which was that when I was a toddler, my dad was a captain in the army at Walter Reed Army Hospital. Mm -hmm. And um, he worked with post-traumatic stress victims from Vietnam, but that's another story. And my mother was terrified that he was going to go to Vietnam. At the same time, my grandfather had disappeared for a while, which put her in a very serious depression. And, you know, she was a first-time mother, overwhelmed with all these things. And so the long and the short of it is, and I love my mom very much now after all we've been through, but at that time, she, she couldn't give me what I needed. So I would come running to her crying or needing a hug or something. And she would say, you know, Glenn, there's a bottle of chocolate syrup in the refrigerator on the floor. Go get your Bosco. And I would literally run and go suck on that bottle of chocolate syrup. You know, it's a picture of a two-year-old. I'm, I'm kind of dating myself talking about Bosco because that brand isn't around anymore. <laughs> I don't, do you remember it? Oh, I remember Bosco. It was my friend. Oh, yeah, we could have had a party. <laughs> we could have had a party. Love Bosco. Bosco. Bosco rocked. He definitely did. <laughs> so, but here's the thing. You would think that based on the theory of emotional eating, you would think that by understanding and having that insight, then I could go and find love and fix the loneliness in my life, and then I wouldn't have the urge for chocolate. But it turned out that when I started to work on doing that, it's, that's no easy task, by the way. I mean, no easy task. That's no easy task. And there was this little voice in my head that took advantage of that. And it said, you know what, Glenn? You're right. Your mama and your papa, they didn't love you enough. And until you figure out how to fix all that loneliness and find the love of your life, you're, you're just going to have to keep on binge eating on chocolate. Yippee, let's go do it. And I actually, in some ways, was eating worse. Mm -hmm. Now, it was still, it was still worth looking at that connection. I, I, I always say that food is a window to the soul 
and it's really worth examining your background for soulful reasons, not for the purpose of fixing the food problem, but just for soulful reasons because I have a better relationship with my mom. I think I've got a much better chance of finding love at this point. Um, I, I'm, I feel more whole inside from having worked on that and, and figured that out. But it didn't stop the binge eating. And what stopped the binge eating, um, I, you know, I, I got to Overeaters Anonymous. That helped me for a little bit, and then it kind of made it worse. What really stopped the binge eating, I researched some alternative addiction treatments. Mm-hmm. And I ran across a guy named Jack Trimpey, who wrote a book called Rational Recovery. And he works largely with the black and white addictions. So I'm um, talking about... Um, Drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, th- things that you can quit in your life. There's no nutritional re- need for alcohol, drugs, or cigarettes in your life. You can just stop. But as they say in the 12-step programs, if you want to eat well with food, you still have to take the line out of the cage three times a day and walk it around the block. And what, what Jack said, and I'm paraphrasing, was that the problem in our culture is really that we're all – trying to love ourselves thin. We're all like really sympathizing with this addict inside of us. And that doesn't work because the brain, and I'm simplifying this to sure. for illustration, and sure. a neurologist will take me to task. Maybe you'll take me to task. But, but basically there are three parts of our evolutionary history of the brain. There's the lizard brain, which was the first to evolve. Mm-hmm. And when the lizard brain sees something in the environment, it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? Yep. Eat it, mate with it, or very primitive. And please interrupt me if you want to add anything to this. Not at all. I, I, <laughs> our, our preamble, folks, was uh, Glenn promised that he would not be a potty mouth, and I told him he could go right ahead. And when you brought this up, I just thought of <laughs> other, <laughs> other things. <laughs> go right ahead. I'm sorry. Just a note to the editor, I lost um, I lost Michael on my side for a second while he was saying that, but now I hear him again. Um, okay, so the lizard brain looks at something and says, eat, mate, or kill. And it's really the lizard brain that is responsible for addiction because – let me tell you about the rest of the brain and then you'll understand why. The mammalian brain evolved later. It's um, to include the limbic system and the sense of emotion. And really, by and large, the mammalian brain's function – is to temper the lizard brain for considerations of tribe. Mm. Um, you know, as as, animal, as mammals evolved, we came to realize that we did better together than we did apart. And so now before the lizard brain eats, mates, or kills something, um, the mammalian says, wait a minute, well, what about those other guys over there? And then there's the logical brain or the neocortex, which is where... Um, which has the capacity to delay gratification for all of the above, or, or technically all of the below. And that's where what we think of as more uniquely human is. That's where our plans and aspirations lie. That's where our goals and dreams are. That's where our ability to um, strategize and um, articulate, you know, music and soulful insights. And it, it's all integrated, but the point is that there are these more sophisticated brain structures that kept evolving, and their purpose was to temper the ones below them. And that's critical that you understand because in our culture, we have this notion of being powerless over the addiction, but it's not really true. The seed of 
the seat of the addiction is in the lizard brain. The seat of the addiction is in the um, hijacking of our survival drives, which is the lizard brain, um, which really in an emergency can bypass all of the more sophisticated brain structures. It's the hijacking of those drives to connect with um, hyper palatable food-like substances. Mm. So, you know, we didn't we didn't have any chocolate on the savanna when we were evolving. We didn't have any chocolate in the tropics. There were no bags and boxes and containers of all these concentrated forms of starch and sugar and oil and fat and excitotoxins that were then packaged up by billion dollars of packaging research to make it look healthy and billion dollars of advertising that sent 7,000 messages a year to us over the airwaves and internet, hardly any of them being about fruit and vegetables. Um, we didn't have that. And so it's kind of like a perfect storm coupled with the addiction treatment industry saying you can't resist even if you want to. There's no human defense. The best you can do is quit one day at a time. And you look at all this and you wonder why is anybody – why is anybody really able to to abstain? Why is anybody able to to be thin? Um, and so what Trimpy said was, look, what you need is not to love yourself. You don't want to love the lizard brain. Um, you know, at, at the moment of impulse, what you want to do is think of this thing as a sociopath. Think of this thing as as the part of you that doesn't care about the tribe, doesn't care about love, doesn't care about your long-term goals. And you want to develop a sense of distaste for it. I'm, I'm really paraphrasing this stuff, and he's kind of protective, so I'm going to stop talking about him in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had to make a lot of modifications because you have to take, you have to eat. You can't just stop eating. But basically what I said, and this is the embarrassing part, because I'm, by my credentials, you think I'm a really sophisticated scientific psychologist, and I am. <laughs> but, but what worked for me was, okay, I'm going to call my lizard brain my pig. I'm going to make a rule that says... Um, for example, I will never eat chocolate again. Now, like I said before, you can say I'll never eat chocolate on weekdays or I'll never eat chocolate you know, outside of a social event. You don't have to give it up. You don't have to make a rule at all. But just for illustration, I made one rule that said I will never eat chocolate again. Therefore, chocolate is pig slop, and I don't eat pig slop, and I don't listen to farm animals tell me what to do. And as ridiculous as that sounds, as crude and psychotic as it sounds for someone of my stature to, to do that. That's what worked for me. Not, not immediately. There are a lot of more modifications I had to make. And I, I always want to jump in here for a second and let people know mm-hmm. I, I'm a vegan. I, I care about real pigs in the world. I don't want people to be mean to real pigs. Um, they really need our help. They're being mistreated. This is a mental construct and it works because most people don't like to think of themselves eating pig slop. And what happens is at the moment of impulse, when you're standing at the Starbucks counter and there's a big hairy chocolate bar waiting for you as you're looking to pay for your latte, and you hear this voice in your head that says, you know, Glenn, chocolate grows, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean, and a cocoa bean grows on a plant, and so therefore chocolate is a vegetable. You, you know that that voice is pig squeal, and since you don't listen to farm animals tell you what to do and you don't eat from a pig trough, you have this momentary jolt of disgust, and those it gives you this extra little bit of time, even a few microseconds, to say, whoa, let me wake up here and remember what my plans are, remember what my goals are, remember what my dreams are, remember what's important to me. And that's how you make the right decision. Um, so I will pause there because I know that's a little bit to digest and let you ask questions or tell me where you want to go next with this. But sure, uh, that's what worked for me. That's with, with a whole bunch of 
tweaking and modifications yep. of the kind of rules you can make, and I've worked with a lot of clients about it. That's what works for them. So I'll shut up now. I get very excited about this stuff. <laughs> I I love it as well. So, all right, what? Let me let me ask you a question. Um, let's talk about the pig and you you talk about men, uh, mental uh, mental construct do you, do you think where where does where does the emotion tie into it is it the is it the construct that you're making a contract with yourself where does that how does that why is that successful well if you were to analyze any binge and go back to the first bite a lot of people will say that they were unconscious. They didn't really know what they were doing. Then I'll ask them, where did you buy the food? And they'll say, well, you know, there was a lady at the 7-Eleven, and she was a little bit cute, and I was a little embarrassed, so I didn't really look at her. And, um, you know, I gave her these two apple pies, and I paid for it, and that was really the beginning of the end for me that day. And and I'll say, well, what flavor were the apple pies? And they'll go, well, obviously, they were apple. And I'll say, what brand were they? Oh, they were Hostess. And um, not to particularly attack hostess and just talking about people. Mm-hmm. People know the details as if there were a video camera running. So they really weren't unconscious. And then I'll say, do you remember when you opened the package? And most people say, yes, I did. Well, where were you? I was sitting in my car and right by the gas pump. And um, do you remember raising the apple pie and putting it in your mouth? Yes, I did. What was going through your mind at that time? There was no, there was no pig slop in your mouth before that. And most people will find that there was this voice that made it okay for some reason. Hmm. Sometimes that voice is as simple as saying, F it. Sometimes that voice is, well, I did enough exercise this morning so I could afford this or I deserve it or everybody else does it or come on, I had such a busy day. I'm taking care of everybody else. I need a little something for myself. But the point is that there's a mediating voice between impulse and action. And so when you're working on the emotions, um, Yes, you are, to a certain extent, looking at some of the driver of the impulse, but we're all capable of feeling any intensity of emotion without having that first bite of apple pie, um, just as an illustration. We're, we're all capable of doing that. And what I really found was that you can go around forever trying to figure out why you do it, or you can just stop. Mm-hmm. The the other piece about emotional eating that most people don't understand is that we're not just eating to numb out. We're not just eating for comfort. Everybody says, I need comfort food. And it is true, as Doug Graham and his wife say, that when you overeat, when you put the wrong foods into your body, you're interfering with the nervous system's ability to conduct emotions. So there is a little bit of an analgesic effect. But that omits the fact that what you're really doing is eating to get high with food. And there's a series of studies, maybe you know the exact dates, I don't really know them, Michael, but it's late 50s, early 60s, where researchers, these were animal studies, which wouldn't be ethical today, maybe were not ethical at the time, but they were done. And what they did is they implanted electrodes in the rat's pleasure centers, and they wired those electrodes to a lever that the rats could use to self-stimulate. So basically, they short-circuited the natural mechanisms by which rats would get pleasure. And they said, here's a button, just press it, and you're going to feel ecstatic pleasure. And what they found first was that the rats would press the button thousands of times a day, sometimes hundreds of times an hour. That's all they wanted to do. 
And then they wanted to see, well, what would the rats do to, um, what would they, what would they give up? How important was the button to them? And it turns out pregnant rats will abandon their nursing pups. So the instinct of motherhood was short circuited. Starving rats will keep pressing the button as opposed to eating. Um, incredibly thirsty rats will keep pressing the button as opposed to drinking. And so what this really says is in an extreme example is that when our pleasure buttons are hyperstimulated in a way that and and made available for us to hyperstimulate in a way that nature didn't intend, mm -hmm. we will engage in severe, severe self-neglect. What we're really doing is getting high with food. That's, you know, I, I did a lot of consulting for these big industries and, and I told you before how much money and profit is in creating these hyper palatable, you know, essentially a pleasure button. This sure. bags and boxes and containers that didn't exist in the tropics. Those are pleasure buttons. And people get so attached to them, they engage in self-neglect. And then that self-neglect dramatically worsens people's lives and they wind up with more emotional problems. I tell people, look, if you've got six problems and then you overeat, now you have seven problems. Um, it, much better to live with the six problems and, and you know, feel miserable for a day if you have to and live with life on life's terms than to add all these, you know, boxes and containers and bags. Not that you can't have them if you really want them, if you can, if you can handle them. Um, and so there is a role of emotion. It's a window to the soul. It's a good thing to look into. It'll make you more comfortable if you work on that. But don't mistake, don't, don't believe that you have to spend years sitting by the river meditating before you can stop overeating or that you have to see a shrink for years or figure out why your mama and your papa didn't love you before you can stop overeating. Stop overeating using, for most people I find I can make this work, stop overeating using this kind of technique and then talk to a shrink and then, you know, go sit by the water and look at how much clearer your mind is going to be and how much more progress you're going to make in those emotional difficulties and stop getting high with food. Stop getting high with food. So, Absolutely. Talk to me about the pig. Let's dive into that. So for for the sake of the book and for your life, you've chosen the pig. And again, not not trying to denigrate a pig. Um, but let's get into this mindset of, I want to say, is it training the pig? Is it, how, how do you want to, let's look at this. Well, what you mostly want to do is, is hear it and ignore it. Um, remember, the, I think it was the movie Hannibal where they warned Jodie Foster not to talk to Anthony Hopkins, to his character, because he was exceptionally bright, had access to all this native intelligence, and was going to use it for evil purposes. Mm -hmm. By definition, what you're doing is you're separating your constructive versus your destructive thoughts about food. You you sit down and you figure out what food plan you want to follow. No, nobody else tells you what to do. I'm not going to tell you what to eat. You sit down and you start, by the way, with one rule, whatever your single worst trigger food or behavior is, and you make a rule like, I will never eat chocolate during the week again, during a weekday again should be a rule that 10 people following you around all week would agree whether you were on or off. Very, very clear, no ambiguity. So you make that rule, and the purpose of that rule is to totally separate your constructive versus your destructive thoughts with regards to that rule. And so now, anytime you're walking around on a Wednesday and you hear that voice that says chocolate is a vegetable, 
you immediately know that that's pig squeal. You immediately know where that leads because you've defined it as a destructive thought. And you don't have to have a rational disputation. You don't have to, you don't have to know the answer at the moment of impulse. It's, we often lose access to our logical brains for the moment when the impulse is really strong. All you need to do is go, whoa, that's pig squeal and I don't listen to farm animals tell me what to do. And so you're, you're actually, this is not a cute pet inside of you. This is not something you want to nurture. This is something that you're distancing yourself from. Um, you might think of it more like a wild boar than a, you know, than Babe the pig or one of those cute pigs in the movies or something like that. So it's more, more like a wild boar that's going to be very dangerous if you let it out of its cage. And you want to leave it in its cage. It's okay if this mental construct, if it is unhappy in the cage, it's made you unhappy for your whole life. It's the worst enemy that you've probably ever faced. And yes, I know it sounds crazy, but you know we know it's a mental construct. We know there's not really a pig inside of you. But you're allowed to organize your thoughts any way that you want to. They're your thoughts. It's your brain. So why not? If it works, if this little trick of language works, why not do that? Absolutely. So why do you think this is so prevalent today in, in our society, Glenn? Well, because of a lot of the reasons that I was talking about before, yep. because there's so much profit in the food industry um, to engineer foods that um, they they can make them seem healthy with advertising. They can make them seem healthy with packaging um, because they've become so good at making foods that really are seemingly irresistible. Mm -hmm. um, I can tell you, I can tell you why this technique works. It's, it's on a deeper level than you think it would. Why don't I tell you why now? Yeah, the, absolutely. The, so what we're really doing here is shaping character because Okay, most people are very frightened of the word never. We'll talk about why you don't have to be frightened of that in a minute. But it's clear from the research that willpower is a fatigable muscle. And so if you say, if you say I'm going to do X today, or I'm going to try to do X today, and you try to make good decisions all day long, there are only so many good decisions you can make. So if you say, I'm going to try to avoid chocolate, a lot of people have the experience of avoiding it all day long, but then they get home and they just can't, they just can't do it. Because the research has proven that, you know, willpower takes glucose in your brain and takes a lot of the electrical energy and it wears down over the course of the day. It's a muscle. But decisions of character eliminate those decisions and so it eliminates the fatigue. So for example, how much willpower did it take you, Michael, not to steal the waitress's tip at the at the diner when you walked in last time and there was a twenty dollar bill on the table. Right? No will no willpower. Yep. It doesn't take any willpower because do you want to say why? It's not even a thought in my in my brain. Not even a thought in your brain because you're not a thief. Right. Right? Yep. As a matter of character, you might not have gone through a conscious decision process about this, but as a matter of character, you've decided you're not the kind of person who would do that. Mm -hmm. You're not a thief. Similarly, you could decide you're not, not the kind of person who eats chocolate on a weekday. And if you're not the kind of person who eats chocolate on a weekday, then all of your decisions about chocolate have been made um, for the week, and you don't have to worry about it. And so a lot of people will say, well, I could never I could never avoid chocolate all week. And I say, that's probably true, but you could be the kind of person who never eats chocolate during the week. And that little shift of language really triggers a light. Um, 
Glenn, say that, say that again, because I don't want people to miss that. Well, if you were thinking about giving up chocolate on weekdays, mm-hmm. your pig would start screaming and saying, oh, my God, you're going to be too deprived. That's impossible. Life is going to be miserable. You could never do that. And so people will tell me, I don't think I could ever give up chocolate during the week or I couldn't give it up at all. And I'll say that might be true, but you could become the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate during the week. And that that shift of language from a um, from a day to day, a day to day painful, energy draining, willpower sucking decision to a matter of character makes all the difference in the world. C- character trumps willpower. Character trumps willpower every day, all day. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. I love that. So is, is ending overeating hard? Is it complicated? It doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be complicated at all. Um, I like to tell people that all you really need to do to never binge again is never binge again. Um, you, You don't have to smack yourself over the head with a spatula or do penance or do any of that. Um, it does, as a practical matter, take people a little bit of time because it takes a little time to get over your fear of these rules because our, our culture tells you progress, not perfection, um, just have guidelines. And guidelines aren't character statements, by the way. They're things that require decisions all day long. Um, so it takes a little while to shift your paradigm. Um, it takes a little while to learn the game of how to purge all the doubt and insecurity from your mind and assign it to your pig. Um, I, I tell people, by the way, to think of um, think of an archer and an archer aiming at the bullseye, and you, you need to know exactly where the bullseye is. It's not, well, I kind of sort of avoid chocolate, because then you couldn't really see the bullseye, and you'd be aiming in and around the area. It's, um, you know, I, I never eat chocolate during the weekend and never will again. Now, if that archer were to miss the bullseye, that archer wouldn't, uh, an archer worth his salt, wouldn't, you know, smack himself in the head and say, I'm worthless and I'm a compulsive bullseye misser and I'm never going to be any good and I'm going to shoot the rest of the arrows just in the air. He would get up and aim at the bullseye again. And when they're aiming at the bullseye, they need a mechanism to purge their mind of all the doubt and insecurity. That's that's the psychology of winning. Mm. And if they keep getting up and re-aiming at the bullseye with 100% commitment to the bullseye, every every cell in their body, every ounce of their soul is committed to that bullseye, then they have to get better. And I, I, I give people an analogy of a commitment that they wouldn't accept. So when you're getting married... Would you accept this from? Would you accept this marital vow from your spouse? You know, honey, I'm about 90% certain that I'm never going to sleep with anybody else again. But there sure are a lot of attractive people out there, and I'm just being honest. You want me to be honest, right? <laughs> yeah, that's not so hot. <laughs> that, that, that's that's not really romantic. No. And so what I tell people is, if you understand the nature of a commitment in that context, and you wouldn't accept anything less than a 100% vow because a vow is a plan to remember, then why are you letting yourself be derailed by all of the pig squeal that says, but you're going to forget, but there's all this yummy stuff out there, but, 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 why not decide where that bullseye is for you and, and aim for it every time and 
clearly hear that pig squeal and purge it from your mind so you're not drained of the energy to accomplish your goal. The only other reason that people are afraid of this is they say, well, if I make a mistake, I'm really going to beat myself up and I have enough guilt in my life. And see, that that's a subtle pig squeal in and of itself because it's – if you touch a hot stove, the – thing to do is to say, how did I touch the hot stove? You should feel pain for a minute um, and maybe even some severe pain for a minute. But then you don't, you don't perseverate about it and say, I'm a compulsive hot stove toucher and I'm, I'm so awful and here, let me put my whole hand on the stove because obviously I did once. I might as well put my whole hand on it. I'll recover from it tomorrow. I'll stop touching hot stoves tomorrow. You, you, the very moment you feel that pain, you get up and you say, okay, what did I do? How do I avoid the hot stove in the future? And let me get up and be uh, be someone who avoids hot stoves. who will never touch a hot stove again, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, and so it's, it's very difficult to keep binging if you don't keep yelling at yourself. And the purpose of yelling at yourself, it's really the pig squealing to wear you down so, you'll do bin- so you will binge again. This is very difficult for people to remember. The, the pig will say, well, you've tried so many times before, you might as well just give up and be a happy fat person. As if I, I haven't really met that happy fat person. I, I think fat people should be loved. I really am very much against fat shaming. Um, but when I talk to them intimately, they're not really happy about, about being fat. And, 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 and the pig wants to tell you that all of your attempts in the past really prove that you can't do it. But the truth is, when you start to look at the research about that, that people who attempt to quit certain behaviors multiple times, the more they attempt, the more likely they are to quit. If you keep trying to figure out what food plan is going to work for you um, so that you can lose weight and, and keep it off, the odds are much greater that you're going to figure it out. It, it only makes logical sense. You know, get up, get up until you, if you don't at first succeed, try, try again. It only makes logical sense. But at the moment of, um, at the moment of, making a mistake, the pig will tell you that that's not true, that a failure means you're really totally a failure. But if there's breath in your body, then you can do this. If you have breath in your body still, you can you can figure this out. Like um, like Earl Nightingale said, their failure only exists in the grave. And mm-hmm. I, I thoroughly believe that about food. I think I've seen people 65, 70 years old after a lifetime of binging turn it around and if they can do it, you can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. I told you some of the things I did with food. I told you how awful it was. It took me 30 years to figure it out. Um, you, you, you don't have to suffer with this indefinitely. You really don't. Sure. I, I agree with you um, on every single word that you said. Uh, let me ask another question with regards to the book. In it, you say uh, – you talk about food plans and, and – some of the categories could you talk about them so how this becomes your own personal plan yes and the reason this is important is that if you don't take 100 percent responsibility for your own personal food plan then at some point your pig is going to say gee that so-and-so diet guru's food plan obviously doesn't work we're just going to have to find another one but in the meantime we can keep binging and then you go from diet to diet to diet so most people listening to this have been around the block enough times that they, they know what eating healthy means to them. And so I ask people to sit down and create, create the plan. A plan is just a set of rules. Mm-hmm. And I give people a structure, which is a simple structure for 
creating a food plan in those four buckets. There are nevers, things that you'll never do again. Um, like personally, I'll never eat chocolate again. Um, there are always, and that's to ensure, by the way, that you don't make your plan too restrictive. Just because you have rules doesn't mean you should restrict yourself and deprive yourself of calories or nutrients. Mm -hmm. So I will always have six servings of fruit and vegetables a day or I'll always drink, you know, 16 ounces of purified water the first thing in the morning when I get up or sometimes they're just mindful rules. I work with people who don't have any restrictions in their food whatsoever, but they have rules in place to support their mindfulness. So I will always put my fork down between bikes. I will always meditate for five minutes before a meal. I I will always um, get outside for an hour every day and so that I can breathe and think about what I'm eating the next day. Or I will always write down an intended food plan for the next day, not necessarily committed, but intended food plan for the next day before I go to bed at night, those kind of things. Then I think it's important to have um, some conditionals. Mm-hmm. So I'll never eat pretzels outside of a major league baseball game or I'll only ever eat chocolate again at a social event. Um whatever your trouble spots are. And, and and sometimes sometimes people do really well to make conditionals for restaurants or birthdays or parties or holidays. Um, sometimes they find that life is just a lot easier if they loosen up a little bit in those situations. Other people find that never is a lot easier than sometimes, so it's really up to you. But, um, you know, and, and the limit on the conditions is really only your imagination and your creative understanding of where your trouble spots are. Um, you know, so I, I, I eat raw, whole fresh, ripe raw foods. Um, but in a restaurant, I'll allow myself to have a little bit of soup if I'm sitting down with someone that I love. Um, or I will allow myself to have a little bit of salad dressing sometimes just because I don't want to seem like a freak of nature. I, I get, there are ways to deal with restaurants. There are ways to stick to your nevers in a restaurant. If you, you know, look at the menu beforehand and you call the chef and you, don't restrict yourself to the items that are necessarily on the menu, but the ingredients that are in those items, and you're willing to talk to the waitress and the waiter and the chef to, to work that out. Um, there are a lot of tricks that I can teach you to do that, but but I make some conditional rules for restaurants because it's just easier for me. I, I go out a reasonable amount with friends and family and things like that, and I, I like to be able to do that without worrying. Um, and then there are unrestricted things. So just so you know, you're never going to starve. So I, I can have any, as many unsauced vegetables as I want to. Um, you can drink as much water as I want to. Some people drink as much tea or coffee as they want to. I'm not necessarily recommending that, but some people do that. So never always conditionals and unrestricted. It's just, it's a nice way to think of how you might want to structure a food plan and, um, um, you know, that's, that's a lot of what I do when I coach people is I kind of help them figure out those rules and how to finesse them so that, um, so that it really works for them long term. That's, um, that's where there's real art to this, where it takes a little while to, to customize it. That, that's brilliant. I, I got to tell you, and, and this, you offer that as a, for the readers, a bonus as well. You have that on, uh, neverbingeagain.com, correct? Yeah, what's on neverbingeagain.com is a set of free food plan starter templates, so you can see um, see what examples are for whatever diet you might be following. So I'm talking about dietary philosophy. So there's a low carb, there's a high carb, there's a vegetarian, there's a 
there's a macrobiotic, there's, you know, something for calorie counters, something for paleo people. Um, just kind of gives you an example of where you might want to start. I call them starter templates because I don't want to be your guru. I, I want you to figure this out for yourself. The other thing that you'll get when you sign up for that are these recorded sessions that I did. We're talking a lot about this in theory, and I'm talking very fast, and we're joking around a lot, but and, and the, the theory sounds a little bit harsh. A lot of people feel like, oh my God, I'm going to be calling myself a pig, and I'm not going to be compassionate. It's going to degrade my self-esteem. It's really anything but, and if you listen to the way this is implemented, and you hear me work with people and get them through their realizations, then... Um, you're going to be much less frightened of this. So yeah, that's all at neverbingeagain.com and just sign up for the free reader bonuses. You'll, you'll also get a free copy of the free electronic copy of the book for Nook or Kindle or PDF when you do that. Um, so that's neverbingeagain.com. Thank you for mentioning that, Michael. Oh, it was my pleasure. That is That was brilliant. Um, I just, uh, I, folks, I, I really, I can't emphasize the importance of you taking the time to engage your prefrontal cortex, <laughs> your brain, and when you write down these rules, that's the magic of this. They are your rules. They're not Glenn's rules. They're not Mike's rules, Wanda Lee or Noah's rules. They're your rules to follow. And I think that's where the magic is in what, in what you've done here with Never Binge Again. Well, thank you so much. That's true. What, one last thing I would leave people with yeah, is that absolutely. it sounds like a paradox, but you can and most likely will change your, your food plan. So really, you're talking to the pig the same way you talk to a little child. You say, hey, little Johnny, you can never, ever, 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 ever cross the street again without holding my hand. Never, ever, ever, ever. And you have to talk to a two-year-old like that. Even though you know when that two-year-old is more mature, you're going to teach them to look both ways and cross themselves. It's kind of the same with your food plan. From the pig's perspective, they can net, this is how it's, this is how it is. This is how it's going to be. They are the inferior animal. You are the superior animal. Um, you're the boss. It's like this because you said so. And it's for their own good. It's for your own good. Um, and that, that's the level at which the lizard brain operates. But it would be silly if you read something new nutritionally that change your mind about food or if you were experimenting with a food plan that you kept making mistakes on because you were being overly restrictive during the way and stay in some way or you you know um you met a new partner and they really needed to have you go out with them to this restaurant once there are all kinds of reasons in life that we evolve our food plans so you have to be able to evolve them but you still commit to them 100 percent the same way that the archer commits to every shot looking at the bullseye i love Hope that, that yeah, I love that. That nailed it. Um, tell people where they can learn more, where they can find you in the world, Glenn. Well, we already did. Just go to just go to neverbingeagain.com and sign up for the free reader bonuses. That's what I would recommend the most, and you'll get the free copy of the book. There, there is also a paperback and an audible version. Those do cost money, but you can have the electronic version. At least as long as Amazon lets us do it, you can have the electronic, electronic version available for free. That's the Kindle or the Nook, or if you're outside the United States, um, we'll get you a PDF. And the free coaching sessions, that's all at neverbingeagain.com. There's also a contact button on that website if you need to get to me directly. That still does go to me where um, we hover around the number one downloaded free book for weight loss, like between number one and number three. And so we've got several hundred thousand downloads at this point. And very soon I'm going to have, have some people around me and some protection. So 
um, this is the time to come do it, or if you want to work with us in coaching, this is the time to do it. Beautiful. Um, yeah, so. I love it. Th- thank you, Michael, so much. Glenn, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to share with our tribe. Uh, it means a lot to me, and it means a lot to, to folks that we can reach them on a regular basis. Um, folks, if you like what you heard, please go to iTunes and like the program, leave a review. We really appreciate that. It helps us to help you so that more people can find us. Um, that's all I got for today, folks. Have a great day. Ciao. Thanks, Michael. All right. That's a wrap, Glenn. Okay. That was Thank great. You, so much. you know, it's going out, it's going out to the, uh, to the general public. Um, I'm sure there are some doctors on here, but I thought your topic was brilliant. I loved it. The interview was great. Uh, I do try to add some sometimes, um, it, it, this is, this is an important topic and sometimes the story is just as important as the information. Um, so we threw a little funny in there once in a while, but I loved it. Um, I- July supplement of the month is BYWG's magnesium glycinate. Magnesium is one of the most common deficiencies in current research and is a critical part of over 200 processes in the human body. Magnesium supplementation is suggested for many people and can be especially helpful for improved sleep, improved mood, muscle cramping, bone density, and so much more. This form of magnesium, magnesium glycinate, is well absorbed and less irritating to the digestive system, so it is the preferred form to other forms. Others can cause disaster pants when taken in the dose that is recommended. For the entire month of July, if you use the code MAG10, case-sensitive, lowercase mag10, you will receive 10% off this incredible mineral. You can pick it up at our website at www.beyondyourwildestgenes.com, or if you're local, you could pick it up at the office and just mention the code. The July book of the month is the Life Strengthening Book by Diana Ferrugia. Dr. Mike had the honor to interview the author for the Beyond Your Wildest Genes podcast. Listening to this podcast is an awesome way to get a feel for the author and this incredible book. You can listen in at our website at www.beyondyourwildestgenes.com at the Listen Now tab. Our product of the month for July is True Dark, an incredible company with many products focusing on stopping junk light. True Dark's premium eyewear helps you manage your light exposure so you can sleep, feel, and live better. They also have special light bulbs, flashlight, nightlight, light therapy devices, and other products to help biohack your health. Personally, I have the flashlight, and I have two different types of True Dark glasses. One to wear right before bed that, if you like music, makes me just look like Bono, and another more stylish pair for regular wear that makes me look like, if you're a Marvel fan, Tony Stark. (laughs) You can check out all these products at the links provided below. Thanks for listening.